0: Hello and welcome to the bizarre and fascinating details podcast. I am your host Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me today. How are you doing, Darcy?
1: Hey, I'm doing good. I'm finally on the mend, feeling better, just living my life now, man. Darcy is my co-host with the Mo (laughs) Hostess.
0: Nice. We've both been recovering a little bit. Yeah. Gonna have to give a trigger warning for today's episode. It is graphic. It is brutal. It is violent. It is really, really traumatic. So, if you are triggered by sexual um, violence and gore and all that kind of graphic detail, please don't listen to the episode. Tune out. This is your trigger warning because this is, this is a pretty deep one. Today, I'm going to tell the story of Dean Coral, the Candyman. Ooh, okay. It is a heavy episode. It is a heavy episode. It is episode, really heavy. Indeed. Um, and there are a lot of different reasons that it is heavy. So um, cases like this, like I remember reading about this for the first time. And this is like, you know, we have this whole discussion about graphic details. Mm-hmm. So there's a fine line, I think, to be played or a fine line to be followed when you're talking about cases like this, because this one is just so extremely graphic that it's like it's hard not to discuss those issues in light of how sick this person was mm-hmm. um, and to display how sick he was. I think sometimes with cases like this, if you don't share some of the details, then you miss how mentally disturbed the perpetrator was.
1: Sometimes. Yeah. Not yeah. always. I'm listening to. Um the um, deviant that bo- that Harold Schechter book about Ed mm-hmm. Gein right now, and I just got to the part where they've arrested him and they've gone into his house, and so like the up until that point it was just like this is a really weird guy, he's super attached to his mother, like you know that kind of a thing, yeah. and then the, and and now like it got to the point where I was like oh my god like I might have to just because it's an audible, so I was like I may have to return this book like this is just it's graphic. It's like that, yeah. And I remember yeah. when I
0: first read about it, I, I think it was about 2014, 2013, maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was even earlier than that. <clears throat> it may have been as far back as, like, 2011. Because it was one of the first serial killer cases that I read about. And I went through this phase where, I mean, I've always been interested in true crime, just as a genre, and interested in the law mm-hmm. and the background of it. I mean, I chose not to go into criminal law, Um, after attending law school because for me, some of it is very disturbing. And I remember when I got my first... um, God, was that my first job? Yeah, when I got my first real... like, Well, my first job out of law school was working in family law. And I was about six months with Mm. a a family law attorney in Kirkland, Washington. And this guy was... uh, Just the quintessential, obnoxious attorney who's so full of himself with his fancy expensive suits. All of his clients were like Microsoft clients mm. and it was basically just the m- people who had made oh. millions on with Microsoft, the first wave of them trading in their wives for newer younger models. Yeah. So they're going through these divorces and the wives want custody of the kids Jeez. and they want alimony and they want a settlement and it was really brutal. Right. And yeah i didn't enjoy it Family and i ended up stuck with all rough, of his cases man. that he just didn't want to deal with like i had you know exotic dancers who were fighting for custody of children who were not taking care mm-hmm. of their children and they were fighting to keep custody but they weren't even some of them weren't mm. even bathing their children and i don't want to say that all mm. parents like that, or all exotic dancers or all sex workers or whatever are like that. Because clearly that's a way gross overgeneralization of it. But the ones that no. I was getting were all just freaking yeah, yeah, terrible yeah. parents.
1: Well, it's the same thing of like, well, if you're a doctor, all you see are sick people. But not everybody's sick all the time. That's just, that's who your clientele is. Yeah,
0: but I remember I having mean, one particular case in in particular, that I was really, really disturbed by. And it was a case of a woman who, she was, again, she was a dancer, um, and she traveled back and forth to Vegas on the weekends to, uh, doing sex work. Mm-hmm. And she had a three-year-old daughter, and she'd been with this man. Um, I don't know that they were married, but she'd been with this man for about five years, and he was mm-hmm. with her, but not the father, not the biological father of her daughter. So she okay. went and got pregnant when she was with him. And had the daughter, and he accepted it as his own child. Okay. And by all accounts, and I did interviews with both of them and with the little girl, and he was an awesome father. She even admitted to it. Like the guy loved this little girl, like she was his own flesh and blood, like he would have done anything for that little girl. And they split up. And she didn't want him to have any visitation, him or his family, even though they'd grown up with this little girl. Mm -hmm. No, I think she was like five when this whole thing happened. Little girl was. She didn't want any visitation. She didn't want him to have any contact with this little girl. But he was the only father she'd ever known. Hmm. So it was very, very hard because it wasn't the best interest of the child to have her be the sole provider for that child. Right. It was brutal. And the thing is, the law has no recourse for this man because they weren't married. He's not the biological father. Yeah. There's nothing. Yeah. And, you know, unless he can show some grievous bodily harm to that child, yeah, there's no way that child can get removed from her custody. And even so, he probably wouldn't be the one that custody would be granted right, to. it would go, go to a, go next to a foster of parent. Next of kin yeah. or a foster parent. Mm-hmm. And so it was just, it was a really sad, sad case because she just loved this guy so much. The little girl just loved, he was her daddy. Yeah. And it was just, uh, after that, I was like, I can't do this. I can't do family yeah. law anymore. I just yeah. can't. Yeah. So anyway, um, and then I thought about a couple of other different kinds of law, but never once did I think about criminal law because I had to spend a lot of time when I got my first real job in the court system doing research on some criminal cases. They were rape cases and they were mm-hmm. just so graphic and brutal that it was just mm-hmm. like I knew I couldn't handle that. There was one in particular about a young woman who had been sexually abused by like one of the mayors or like somebody in very high political office in the Pacific Northwest from like the age of 12 or 13. She'd been groomed by this man. And that wasn't what the case was about. Like, she was raped. Somebody broke into her home and raped her, brutally raped her, like, with a candlestick and all kinds of other crazy stuff. Just injured her just terribly. She survived. But they found this guy and they prosecuted him. But in the course of the testimony for this trial, the transcript came up with questions about this abuse that she suffered as a 13-year-old girl by this politician.
1: Oh my and God.
0: they sealed these documents, but they had to go through a whole process to get it. So they redacted the name. Was the, the politician name. ever prosecuted? I don't believe so. I think the oh. statute of limitations was already gone for that. Oh. But it was just oh,
1: Jesus. horrific.
0: Yeah. And after I did the research on that case, because somebody else was looking it up for back information on something, they wanted to check to see if everything in the file was indeed redacted. If there were mm-hmm. any instances in... 600 plus pages of trial transcript that had this guy's name in it. And I had to go through every single page and try to determine that. But in the meantime, like you're reading these deep, dark secrets of these criminal minds that just, it made me, I was turned off of anything criminal related after that. Uh, Anyway, this is a gruesome case. Dean Arnold Coral and his name is really interesting. C-O-R-L-L.
1: I've never Mm -hmm. seen a name spelled like that before. Did you ever watch um, Walking Dead? No, but you know what it does, right? Yeah. So the father, like way back in the beginning, and I don't know if it's still on. I wa- I stopped watching the show after like season four or something. But the, there's like a father. There, there was a father, mother, and son. Like they were the main people or whatever. Yeah. Um. And the son's name is Carl, like C A mm-hmm. But it became like a thing whenever the father would say the son's name. It always sounded like coral, oh, like coral. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of, like, every time I hear Dean Coral, like, I think of now Corl. the Walking Dead yeah. thing. So, well, which is lighthearted and not yeah. like Dean Coral well, was.
0: Dean Arnold Quarrel was born December 24th, Christmas Eve, oh. 1939, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He was the oldest child of Mary Emma Robinson and Arnold Edwin Quarrel. Okay. While he was growing up, his parents had the whole good cop, bad thing going, good cop, bad cop thing going on. His dad, Arnold, was the super strict... Mean one, and his mom was the protective, loving hmm. one. Okay. Um, him and his little brother Stanley um, had a very kind of close relationship with their mother. His parents argued a lot, and they got divorced in 1946.
1: Mm-hmm. I think. What then, year was he born, Dean Carl?
0: He was born in 39. Oh wow! Okay. This wasn't super unusual. Um, that, I think, was just sort of the man expectation back then. The men yeah. were kind of distant, and they were the disciplinarian, yeah. and that was what you are supposed to be. I mean,
1: it's cert- I mean, time. That's certainly the environment my dad grew up in. I yeah. don't know that his dad was a disciplinarian, but, it, like, in terms of not being close and, like, yeah. manly and all of that, yeah.
0: So Dean's mom moved he and his brother to Memphis, Tennessee, and it wasn't necessarily the best kind of a situation. They were kind of in a smaller house. She sold their house in Indiana, but she did it so they could be close to their father. Okay. He'd been drafted into the Air Force, and she loved her children enough to help to try to keep a relationship with her father for them because she knew it was important for them. You said this was 46? Yeah.
1: So that's after World War II.
0: It said he'd been drafted, but maybe he hadn't been drafted. Maybe he just joined the Air Force. I don't know. In any case, he was in the Air Force. As a child, Dean was very shy and withdrawn. He didn't really have that stereotypical lack of empathy kind of a thing that's found in many serial killers, Because those that knew him indicated he displayed concern for the well-being of others, which is Hmm. very unusual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, it looks like as a small child, he was pretty normal. And then at about age seven, he got... Can I guess? What?
1: Oh, never mind. You already said it. I was going to guess head injury.
0: No. He got rheumatic fever. And it wasn't diagnosed right away. It wasn't found until he had a heart murmur that was diagnosed in 1950. Whoa. So, he'd had it for like four years. And when they discovered that he had it, he had had this kind of damage to his heart. And they told him to avoid strenuous exercise. Um, Interesting. On a side note, rheumatic fever. Um, It's an inflammatory disease that impacts the heart, joints, skin, and brain. And usually comes to light about two to four weeks after some form of strep throat has been present. Hmm. So it's kind of creates this and Symptoms include fever, painful joints, involuntary muscle movement, and occasionally a rash that isn't itchy. And what happens if it's untreated immediately is that it does damage to the heart. And, And this occurs in about half the cases, and it can result in heart failure, atrial fibrillation, and infection of heart valves. Whoa. And the underlying cause is usually the strep virus, which causes the person's body to create antibodies that impact their own tissues. And treatment usually um, is sufficient if somebody has penicillin when they have strep throat. Mm-hmm. It decreases the risk of developing rheumatic fever. Um, but patients most often are between the ages of 5 and 14 years old, and usually it's a disease that's found in the developing world, mm-hmm. indigenous people, and areas of poverty and poor diets and nutrition. Usually it develops two to four weeks after strep throat has been present and treatment involves reduction of inflammation within the body, which can be helped with aspirin yeah, or corticosteroids and antibiotics,
1: And it, but mostly it's aspirin at very high doses and there is no vaccine currently available for this. And, and when you say it's mostly seen in the developing world, that wasn't necessarily true in the forties and fifties. No, and it, was, it, it was, it was more uncommon in the United States to, to see it.
0: But it was historically more common to see it in pockets of poverty and lower income yeah. levels. Yeah, 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 In this country. Okay. So back to the story, because I was like, "What the heck is rheumatic fever? What exactly is it?" I've I mean, heard of it, but I didn't know anything about Interesting any of that. that it can be treated with a high dose of aspirin.
1: Well, it can be. The symptoms can be treated with high dose of aspirin, but it sounds like you need it just penicillin. to treat
0: inflammation within the body, the penicillin is to take care of the strep throat, which in oh, turn wow, helps wow, reduce wow. the causes. Okay that contribute to having this occur. So it's like untreated strep throat can yeah. cause the body to have this reaction. Interesting. So. interesting. Super interesting. Sorry. I had a side note there, and I had to talk about that for a second because I was like, what the heck? That's so strange. Anyway, back to the story. So Dean has this heart murmur, and he has to set out when it comes to physical activities. He's not allowed to do PE, and this sets him apart even more.
1: Which we all know is totally cool. All the kids are totally fine with it. You definitely don't get yeah. made fun of. It reminded me of Gacy.
0: Remember, he had those health issues too, and he wasn't allowed to do P.E., and he was just this kind of chubby, lonely, isolated guy. So it's 1950 now, and Dean's parents give marriage another try. Okay. And this lasts about three years, and they split up again for good in 1955. Okay. Okay. The boys did continue regular contact with their dad. Um, and Mary takes the boys and remarries. This time she marries a traveling clock salesman.
1: Can you imagine? Wow! What a time to be alive. A traveling right? clock like when you salesman. Marry
0: a traveling salesman. Like, ugh, I can't imagine. Back in those days, right? So Dean's new stepdad, Jake West. Pretty cool name, huh?
1: That Jake is like West. a, like a, like the the cute boy in the high school rom com right? name. Jake it West. sounds like a cute boy. Yeah. Anyway.
0: His mom moves the family to Vidor, Texas. Ooh, that's a sundown town, like a famously sundown town. town. Yeah, and they have a little sister. So Stanley and Dean get a little sister out of that marriage. But shortly after, Dean's mom and stepdad decide to start a little candy company out of their garage Mm -hmm. called Pecan Prince, which sounds like a weird name for a candy company, but who am I to judge? Um, the kids were expected to help out, and they were often working in the business while attending school in the daytime. The boys actually ran the machines, mm-hmm. picked and packed the products, and the stepdad sold the candy while traveling all over the place selling clocks. Side hustle. Right? Imagine him changing clothes and like, switching up the merchant's car and going to the same heaps <laughs> that he's selling the clocks to. Like, Can I interest hey, you in some pecans? The clock maybe wasn't your speed, but <laughs> maybe some pecan candy. What about these pralines? Right. Anyway, um, much of the biggest sales happen in Houston, Texas. Yeah. um, For the candy business. And I guess that Houston's love their candy, maybe. Maybe I guess. I don't know. But during all of this, Dean attends high school at Viter High School. And he's a good student with an average grades. And he's a bit of a loner. Right. He dates occasionally and plays in the brass band where he really enjoys making music on his trombone. God, man, I bet the brass band was like
1: fire in the 50s. Like Probably. that's like the I time Almost like entertainment. the brass band. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And he played the trombone, which yeah. is quite a snazzy instrument. Like you have to be really f- full of flair
1: to play the trombone. I never played it. I I t- took keyboard lessons when I was a kid. That's the only uh, instrument and experimentation I've ever had.
0: I played the violin, which Did is you? literally the most nerdy instrument that ever was. <laughs> anyway, don't get mad at me. Don't send hate mail. I played the violin. And it wasn't the cool violin. It was the nerdy is violin. Cool you violin? play Mary Had a Little Lamb.
1: <laughs> I don't even, you
0: know, sometimes they have the violin in those country songs, and it's, like, really, like, happening, and it's kind of a country sort of a vibe, and they're jamming down, and they're, I like, that was a rocking banjo. out. Oh, hmm.
1: no, 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 I know what you're talking about. Yeah. The fiddle. Yeah, the fiddle. Called the fiddle. But anyway, same thing. Anyway. Now we're going to get the hate mail. It's, I, I don't think it is the same thing.
0: It is. Is it? Yes.
1: I don't Basically know. Basically the same thing. But during all of this,
0: this guy's playing in the, the brass band, but not long after Dean graduates in 1958, the family moves to the outer part of Houston to be closer to the biggest candy sales. They're doing it. They're like, we're mm-hmm. going to make a go of this. This is going to happen. Kidding. The pecan prince is going to kill it. This is going to be the brand name for the family product, and we are going to just dive into this headlong. But then his mom convinces him to move to Indiana for a little bit to help out his grandmother. She's been widowed, and she needs a little bit of extra love and attention. So it's Justine that goes. Yeah.
1: Okay. He's right out of high
0: school, so, like, he's that strong, strapping young man, and Mm -hmm. he's going to go help grandma out. And he meets this girl and starts dating her for a little bit, And she asked him to marry her in 1962. Oh, how
1: progressive. Yeah,
0: wild, right? But he is completely turned off by this. And he's like, um, no. Then he ends up moving back to Houston to help with the family business yet again. And eventually gets an apartment above the shop. So Mm -hmm. he stays with grandma for a little bit until she gets her situation under control. And then he's like, deuces, I got to go back to Houston. They need me with the candy business. Mm Mm-hmm. So then Jake West and Mary get divorced in 1963, and they start a new business. Just the boys and their mom. So Jake okay. West gets the pecan prince, and Mary starts the new business called Coral Candy Company. How Yeah. And Dean gets to be the vice president. His younger brother is the secretary treasurer, and I think his mom is obviously the president, Right, right. So it's during this time that a teenage employee comes forward and claims that Dean kind of tried to make the moves on him. Mm. And this is like the early 60s. So like, number one, I don't think people believed him because homosexuality was so hidden and so shameful and so like not a thing back then, even though it was going on, clearly it was going on, but it was very much hidden. And for, to have this young kid come up, it just, I think, probably sounded to her like he was making stuff up. Or, Especially
1: in Houston. It's yeah, not like yeah, that would have very, been a very town in the 60s. Yeah.
0: Exactly. So, basically, she fires him in response. She fires the, the, the kid employee? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, I, it's obvious she believed her son would never yeah. do such a thing. But not long after, Coral gets drafted into the Army. This is Vietnam coming up, right? Yep. August 16th, 1964. He goes to Fort Polk, Indiana for basic training. And then he goes to Fort Benning for some training. And then he gets stationed in Fort Hood in Texas, where he's permanently stationed. And he was really only in there for like less than a year, training as a radio repairman. So he didn't actually serve overseas? No. Um, He's been training as a radio repairman. And his record is like spotless while he's in the army. And despite all of this, he hates the military. And he applies for a hardship discharge, saying he's needed to run the family business. Oh, okay. So he's like, i got to get out of here. I cannot yeah. handle this. And maybe he figured out how to get out was this honorable discharge. And they gave him that June 11, 1965. Again, just about 10 months of military service. So mm-hmm. he never saw action overseas or anything like that. Reportedly, his time in the military made him realize he was gay. Okay. And that's where he claims he had some of his first sexual encounters. Okay. According to friends and family that knew him well. Other people who knew him said that his behavior changed after military service, leading them to believe he was gay. So it was pretty drastic for them to be able to notice something mm-hmm. like that in that period of time, right? Yeah. So Dean goes back to Houston and gets into this fierce competition with his stepfather's company, the pecan prince, and he responds to this competition by throwing himself into his work. And mm-hmm. I don't think it's unusual for him to do that anyway, because like he's probably battling with his homosexual tendencies, which were not accepted during that mm-hmm. time period. So he was probably trying to work hard so that he didn't have to think about it. And so that, you know, you, it's hard to get in trouble when you're working hard. Mm-hmm. Right. By 1965, the business is good. And it's partially because they moved across from an elementary school. Yep. kids love candy. Yeah. Yeah. And he's known to give free candy. And that was, I think, where he got to be known as the candy man at first. Yeah. That's how I always heard it. Yeah. He especially likes giving it to attractive young boys. (laughs) And this is when he starts getting the
1: nickname, the Pied Piper or the Candyman. Now, the Pied Piper is probably the more appropriate one because doesn't that story end with him killing all the kids? I don't want to get into that. That's terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. I thought it did. It's one of those fables that doesn't happen. In the
0: meantime, though, um, the company is hiring more and more teenage boys. And Dean is seen being super flirty. A little bit like Gacy, again. He sets up this little recreational area at the rear of the business where young workers and other youth can come hang out. Like a pool table and like... This sounded so... But this happened before Gacy. I believe Gacy was late 70s. So Gacy like took a page out of this guy's book. So then it's...
1: Wasn't he also like? weren't they also like smoking pot? Like they could go and like do drugs. This and stuff was the sixties.
0: I mean, pot, like huffing paint, uh, drinking, yeah. like LSD. Like it was a, all go. But I think the most common for them was marijuana and beer.
1: Yeah, and this was like the area where yeah. they all went and hung out with the yeah. cool older kid that provided all. Well, of I that, think yeah. Dean was like.
0: 20 by then, so he's not really a kid. Yeah, cool
1: older guy. And then then, it's
0: 1967, and a 12-year-old kid named David Owen Brooks comes along. He wears glasses, and he hangs out, and he gets free candy, and he basically hangs out with Dean, and is a regular fixture in Dean's little social circle. And in the meantime, though, Dean is taking boys to South Texas beaches and starts taking Brooks, who likes Dean because he's unlike any of the other peeps he hangs out with, and Dean doesn't make fun of him. So I guess David Brooks was a Mm -hmm. little bit nerdy and like a little bit teased and kind of quiet and shy. And really, um, Dean Coral is the only one that treats him like just a normal person. Like, hey, you're just like everybody else. And
1: that appeals to him. There's a problem, though, when adults identify better with children. Like, that's always a red flag when adults, (laughs) I do think. That's what I'm saying. But yeah, that's, I mean, I understand why as a child, he yeah, felt like that. Like, wow, this older, this older man gets me. Dean was me, clearly but like, grooming him. It's He's a problem. He's clearly being groomed. Yeah.
0: Because Dean yeah. starts like first, you know, very subtly complimenting him, making him feel secure. Then he starts inviting him on all these kind of illicit trips that he should never have been going on with an adult male mm-hmm. by himself. Then he starts getting cash And then David starts looking at Coral as sort of this father figure. And then Dean drops the act and pushes David for sexual favors. And this sexual relationship Mm -hmm. develops between this 12-year-old boy and this adult man. So he's very, very obviously grooming this poor young boy at this point, which is just awful. God. Um, And during this time, David's parents got divorced and his mom moved out of Houston, but he was allowed to stay at Coral's apartment when he visited his dad in Houston. And gradually, after dropping out of school and moving back to Houston, he sort of moves in with Coral. Mm. And, like, this becomes his place to be, right? This was a time with lots of change for everyone, and Dean's mom Mm. moves to Colorado after this failed third marriage, and the Coral Candy Company closes for good in 1968. So now Dean is out of his way to communicate and draw in young boys, so he has to figure something else out. In the meantime, though, he starts Mm -hmm. working as an electrician for the Houston Lighting and Power Company. He worked there until the time of his demise. But during this time, he starts conducting his kind of undercover pedophilia with David Brooks, and he's scoping out other young men for dark purposes. And he does this around his neighborhood of Houston Heights, And it's one of the poorer neighborhoods in Houston in the 70s and 60s in particular. Even worse, Dean had David and another boy named Elmer Wayne Henley, who he trained as accomplices to bring unsuspecting boys home so that he can abuse them. And the Mm -hmm. boys they are bringing home are ones that live in and around Houston Heights and friends and acquaintances of David and Elmer Wayne Henley Mm -hmm. some of Dean's classic tricks are telling kids he knows of great parties and he's going to give them a ride home and then he would basically prime them with drugs and alcohol and again just like exactly and you know at this time kids were a little bit freer parents weren't warning them about pedophiles trying to get at them it was a more innocent time Mm-hmm. Um and I think kids were starting to experiment with drugs and alcohol and really kind mm-hmm. of breaking out of that very conservative 50s era and really not afraid of anything.
1: Yeah. And at this point, and, I mean they're also they're the Elmer, uh Wayne Henley and and what was the, and Brooks are recruiting their friends. So yeah. like it's a friend of a friend. So it's basically so like So you see a creepy I, dude I, in I, a
0: van and you're like, "Hell no, I'm not yeah. going." But if you see a creepy dude with like, two kids your own age
1: who are like yeah, that you know from school like yeah this guy's totally cool yeah. like he's gonna give us drugs you're gonna get in the car yeah. i mean it's the same yeah. thing as you know the man and the woman together you're gonna be more likely yeah. to take a ride yeah. with
0: them than you would be if you saw a man by himself 100 so they definitely provided that element that was reassuring to these teenage boys
1: mm-hmm.
0: so coral escalated at some point to killing and Authorities are not really sure when this happened, but he had handcuff games and he liked to tie victims to his bed or handcuff them to something that can only be described as a torture board where they would be beaten, tortured, abused, and sexually assaulted before they were either strangled or shot. Coral would then wrap them up in plastic sheets and bury them. In either the woods, a rented boat shed, or at the beach, or anywhere else that he felt was a secret, quote-unquote, place to hide them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the victims were forced to write home or call to throw the parents off or the authorities. Dean Mm -hmm. liked to keep trophies. He particularly enjoyed taking keys from these young boys as his trophies. Mm -hmm. And during this time, Dean moved multiple times. Um, He kind of kept it switching it up, Um, probably to throw the authorities off, but he always stayed close to or in and around Houston Heights. Okay, Okay, so let's talk about the victims. The first known victim in the reports and the um, information out there about Quarrel was an 18-year-old college student who disappeared while hitchhiking home from the University of Texas. His name was Jeffrey Conan. Now. There is some debate, and I want to talk about this a little bit later, as to whether this truly was the first victim or not. But this is the first sure. victim on record that they can conclusively...
1: First yes, murder exactly. victim. Gotcha. Okay. So
0: the police were led to the body of this young boy, 8 10 And again, we're going to get into that a little bit later. It was buried on High Island Beach. And this is a town off the coast of the Gulf of Mexico and east of Houston. It's determined that Conan died of asphyxiation and manual strangulation at the hands of Coral, who then placed a rag or cloth in his mouth, which ultimately killed him because he couldn't breathe. And he'd been buried under a boulder, covered up with lime, wrapped naked in plastic and bound with nylon cord. There was evidence of sexual assault. So around this time, Young Brooks interrupts his lover, sexually assaulting two teen boys strapped to Dean's bed. Now, I'm not sure that Brooks knew what was going on. I'm sure he was a a kid. He really didn't have a lot of experience with sadism and with masochism and with torture and any of those Mm -hmm. things like that. Who among us does? It would probably have thrown you for a loop. Like, you would have been confused. You would not necessarily know how to deal with something like that. This is like his father figure who has become his sexual partner. Right. Who just, this is a twisted, strange relationship. He ends up negotiating. Right. In exchange for not telling, Dean buys him a Corvette. A Corvette. A green Corvette. Now, Mm -hmm. at that time... You know, 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s. Having a Corvette was pretty badass, right? So he probably thinks, oh, Oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And then Dean tells him he can have $200 for each boy he lures to Coral's place. That's about $1,500 in stays money. Okay. So Brooks, in later, you know, documentation and reporting, says that Coral told him, and Henley that he was involved in a sex trafficking ring and that he wanted these boys so he could sell them into sexual Mm -hmm. slavery. So I think initially, you know, according to some of the accounts, some of them say they knew all along that he was killing them, but some of these accounts suggest that they thought he was selling these boys into sexual slavery, not that he was killing
1: them. And that's why they disappeared.
0: Exactly. And that it wasn't as bad, right? Right. Brooks immediately starts bringing young boys home. And um, he starts with one named James Glass and Danny Yates. So he gets two in one shot there. And they were lured away from a neighborhood religious rally. Hmm. Ugh. They were both 14. Just awful, 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 awful. These poor kids, they're at a religious rally. You wouldn't think that would be a place where pedophiles would come to grab you. These two young boys were raped, tortured, on the special board, strangled, and then buried November 17th in, the rent, in a rented boat shed. Dean gets two more about six weeks later. Like, he is he this on is a rampage. Yeah. No, not okay. 73. I believe this was started in 1970, so you're probably mid-1970 oh, okay. at this point. Um, okay. Donald and Jerry Walthrop brothers were walking home. The two were also tortured, raped, killed around January 30th, 1971. So the second group were killed the beginning of 1971. They ended up in the boat shed too. In 1971, between March and May, Quarrel gets three more from Houston Heights and they end up in the boat shed as well. Brooks was known to have been a part of all three of these. They were 15-year-old Randall Harvey killed by a gunshot to the head 13-year-old David Hillegist, and 16-year-old Gregory Mallory Winkle. They were killed altogether in May of 71. So it was around this time Elmer Wayne Henley was not involved until a little bit into when the killing started, but he was likely Mm -hmm. intended to be a victim too. And Coral sees something in him, stops, and offers him $200 to do the same thing that David Brooks is doing, to bring him young boys. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And Elmer Wayne Henley jumps on it and starts bringing him boys as well. He's been a friend of David Hillegeist. So there is a connection. Like It seems as Mm -hmm. though these boys that are helping Quarrel know or are acquainted with or are friends with many of the young boys that they're kidnapping. Mm -hmm. August 17th, 1971, Brooks persuades 17-year-old Reuben Watson Haney to come party at Dean's house with the promise of drugs and alcohol. He was also strangled and buried in the boat shed. September 1971, Quarrel gets another two young men. Some of these victims are said to have been tortured for four days before they were actually murdered, which is just awful. These two victims have never been identified. So this guy, like he's, not only is he like, doing it rapidly but he's getting like two at once like just yeah. disgusting and during this time coral is telling henley and brooks that he's involved in this white slavery ring that's operating in dallas texas so he's really working this story up to try to yeah i think make them more willing to bring him these young victims but right i'm not sure that they didn't know he was killing these kids
1: uh, yeah it's it's really difficult to no, obviously. I think, I think I've always kind of felt that Wade yeah. Henley knew all along. Well, I, I don't know about part of the Brooks, devious but. nature
0: of these crimes. Is Henley and Brooks assisting to assure the young boys that everything was normal? So, yeah, even if they didn't do the killing directly themselves, like them helping to lure these boys to their death is bad enough. Like it's
1: just as bad. Well, and they, I mean. Let's say they truly didn't know that these children were being murdered. They lured them to sec- being sex yeah. traffic, like yeah. sex trafficking victims. So like, they're not in the clear by any means. But like, yeah.
0: but it does get worse, right?
1: Yeah, of course.
0: Sometimes they would handcuff themselves to show how fun it was, presumably, and how innocent. And then they would do it, and Coral would bind and gag yeah. the, the victims, right? Brooks and Henley later claimed they didn't know the youths were murdered, like I mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, and then they say they believe, they believe the youths were sold into sexual slavery. In March 1972, Brooks, Henley, and Coral lured Frank Aguirre, a friend of Henley's, into a band to smoke marijuana and drink. He was then persuaded to come back to Dean's house, where he was handcuffed, tortured, assaulted, and then buried at the High Island Beach. The two claimed they hadn't known was killing at first up until that point. Mm. But still, even after they found out, they say, with Frank and Gary, they still kept helping him. Mm. And in April 1972, they nabbed a 17-year-old boy by the name of Mark Scott. He was also tied to the torture board, tortured, raped, strangled, and buried at High Island. Billy Balch and Johnny DeLome were next, and Brooks claims Henley actively began participating in killing these young boys at that point. Mm. Hanley started strangling and shooting victims himself and basically helped bury them and sometimes he buried them himself at the high island beach without coral's assistance 19 hmm. year old billy reidinger was next brooks claims he persuaded coral to let this one go but in exchange he assaulted brooks after tying him up ultimately brooks was released And he continued to help Coral abduct and kill boys. That just shows the extent of this training, of this brainwashing that he still, even after that, he could have gotten away. He didn't. He kept helping this guy. Two more victims were killed in the summer of 1972, 17-year-old Stephen Sickman and 19-year-old Roy Bunton. These two were killed and put into the boat shed. In October 1972, Wally J. Simono and Richard Hembry had the misfortune of being driven in Brooks' green Corvette to Quarles' house. And I'm sure they were like, hey, this is awesome. We're going to have such a good yeah. time. We're in a Corvette. We're drinking. We're doing marijuana. We are living the life. And then to end up yeah. in that kind of a situation must have been a huge shock. Yeah. Both of these boys were murdered shortly after and buried in the boat shed. Next, 18-year-old Willard Branch was killed and gagged. He was castrated before he was killed, and then he Mm. was buried in the boat shed. November 15, 1972, 19-year-old Richard Kepner was murdered. In sum, approximately 10 teens between the ages of 13 and 19 were killed between February and November in 1972. Five of these were buried at High Island Beach, and five went to the boat shed. Presumably, Coral was taking a little time off for Christmas, because he didn't do anything in December. Then he grabbed 17-year-old Joseph Lyles, February 1973, and another one, June 4th, 1973, before he killed Joseph Lyles. Then there was another break between February 1973 and June 4th, 1973. Evidently, Coral suffered from a bout of, it's basically a fluid gathering in the body cavity. Oh, okay. Most commonly around the testicles. Oh. Usually it's um, plugged lymphatic system infections or parasites that create this. Um, Coral suffered from this for a few months. Eventually it went away and the fluid didn't gather there anymore. But Henley temporarily moved away and tried to get away from Coral during Mm -hmm. this time period, which who wouldn't, right? Yeah. Then Coral came back with a vengeance. The brutality and frequency of his crimes were getting worse than ever. June 4th, he finds a 15-year-old boy named William Ray Lawrence and abducts him. He suffers through three days of extreme torture before being strangled and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. This is northeast of Houston. 20-year-old Raymond Stanley Blackburn suffered the same fate a few weeks later. Then in July 1973, the trio snatches 15-year-old Homer Lewis Garcia
1: so at some point henley comes back
0: yes henley did come back yeah this young boy garcia was shot and also buried at lake sam Sam rayburn five days after comes 17 year old john sellers who was shot and buried at the high island beach after being tortured then surprisingly brooks marries his fiancee who's pregnant in july 1973 and leaves wow so brooks is getting out of the game He's like, I've been doing this with you for three years now. I'm done. I'm going to go marry and be a dad and be a normal guy. Henley then assists Coral on his own with three murders between July 19th and 25th. There's 15, gosh. Gosh, 15-year-old Michael Balch, brother of the previous boy who was strangled and buried at Lake San Ramon. So this is like, can you imagine being part of that family? You, you're, uh, One no. son is, disappears and then the other one disappears. Uh. Um charles cobble and marty ray jones were both abducted july 25th and buried in the boat shed by henley on his own might i add
1: mm.
0: august 1973 coral navs 13 year old james stanton Dremala, who was tortured raped and strangled before being buried in the boat shed okay that was the last victim of quarrel. then on august 7th 1973 when henley is 17 he invites 19-year-old Timothy Cordell Curley to come party. Presumably, Curley was intended to be a victim.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He comes back to Dean's place. Dean isn't there, I guess, at the time, but Henley and him sniff paint fumes and drink alcohol. Then the two gra- go to grab some sandwiches around midnight. Okay. Got the munchies. Uh, who knows? Maybe paint fumes, sniffing, makes you hungry. But this is when 15-year-old Rhonda Louise Williams joins the group. She evidently was the ex-fiancé or the fiancé of an earlier victim. Okay. But her father had just beat her up. He was drunk. And mm-hmm. she was looking to get away from him, and they say, come hang out with us. We're just going to party and blah, blah, blah. I think this was kind of impromptu. I mm-hmm. think the other guy was possibly intended to be a victim, and they just were like, they felt bad for her.
1: Yeah, because there had never been any women or female no. victims. So the three end up back at Coral's house,
0: and around 3 in the morning... August 8th, 1973, Dean sees the group arrive, and he's pissed because Henley brought a girl, Mm -hmm. presumably, quote, ruining everything for bringing a girl into this situation when he was about to get his party on. Coral then realizes it's better than nothing and offers the three guests beer and weed until they all pass out. Mm. So he just kind of waits for them. And then he handcuffs Henley and tapes his mouth shut and binds the other two and strips Curly naked. Like, he's clearly going to do what he does, torture, kill. Coral then announces he's going to kill all of them for bringing this girl into his house. Henley, in the meantime, negotiates for his life, ultimately convincing Coral to release him so he can participate in killing the two other victims of Williams and Corley. Mm -hmm. Coral planned to kill and torture Curly well, Henley is expected to do the same with Williams. And Quarle makes that very clear. He's yeah. like, this is what's going to happen. You're going to do this, and I'm going to do this. He straps them both to the different sides of the board, like Williams is on one side and, and Curly's is on the other. Yeah. And he's like, this is going to happen. You're going to do her. I'm going to do her, We're going to kill them both. Mm. End of story. Henley then gets into an argument with Quarle, And I think he pretty much just hits the limit. And he tells him he's tired of Dean killing all of his friends. <sighs> then he shoots Dean. Multiple times. The wild part about this is they're all in the same room, and he's arguing with Dean, and he picks up Dean's gun and shoots Dean in the head, mm-hmm. like, in the forehead. The mm-hmm. bullet doesn't pierce his skull. Mm-hmm. Bonkers. He's not dead. He's just pissed. So, yeah. Henley shoots him a couple more times as he's turning away from this gun, because I think initially he was, like, kind of goading him, like, you'd never shoot me. You won't do it, you pussy, and blah, 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 or, like, yelling yeah. at him and getting mad, and then... Of course, Henley is he like, does. yeah, shoots yeah. him, kills him. He ends up dead on the floor of gunshot wounds. He's naked with his face against the wall of his own home. Henley then releases the other two and they all call the police. This is around 830, August 8, 1973 in the morning. Henley was taken into custody, but it's two. But this was just the beginning of the very dark revelations that are about to happen yep. here. So you- I think initially police think that it's just this kid who you know, was partying and got himself mm-hmm. into a sticky situation and, and killed himself in self-defense because he was trying to be assaulted by this gay guy. Mm-hmm. Right? That's not what happened. Everyone believes that Henley shot Dean in self-defense. They just didn't know what the dozens of other victims that Henley had helped right. kill. He immediately confesses that over the last three years, he and David Brooks had helped procure and kill boys with Dean Coral.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, he lets them have it all. He further reveals where the victims are buried and how he initially thought the boys were part of a sex slavery ring, and now he and Brooks had been paid and had assisted with actual killing of these boys. Police then look at Coral's home and find these really strange rooms with, like, torture boards and tools and ropes and wires and motors and electricity and handcuffs and glass tubes used to torture and a bunch of dildos and nylon ropes and all kinds of creepy stuff. The floors are covered with this plastic, you know, over the rugs. It's, and can you imagine, this is, like, early 70s, like, very, very conservative Texas. Like, they must have just been absolutely horrified. Yeah. Coral's van was also rigged for abduction and torture with all sorts of devices, as well as there were crates in his yard with drills hold in the side, or excuse me, with holes drilled in the side and human hair attached. Oh my God. So he's got these crates like to hold these victims as well, but just awful, awful, awful. And Henley leads the police to the boat shed in Southwest Houston, as well as the other areas. Authorities dig up the area and find the bodies just as Henley had described Victims had been sodomized, sexually tortured, pubic hair pulled out, genitals chewed, objects forced into rectums, glass rods inserted on the other side, and smashed, cloth rags inserted into mouths to muffle screams, and all of this was evident by examining the victims. You could tell pretty clearly, even though there had been lime poured on many of them, so they had decomposed quite a bit. Brooks surrendered not long after that, August 8, 1973, to be exact, and he denied doing any of the murdering. He admitted to knowing about the events that transpired, and Henley admitted to assisting with everything for at least nine of the killings and assisting with other ones. So, Henley and Brooks both assisted in finding bodies of victims after that mm-hmm. because there were quite a few of them. The 27 known victims made this the worst killing spree in American history at that point. Mm-hmm. This was, of course, surpassed by John Wayne Gacy in 1978, who we covered in an earlier episode. So if you want to hear about Gacy, look up our earlier episode. He killed 33 boys and young Mm -hmm. men, and he admitted to being influenced by the press coverage of this case.
1: I didn't know that. Gacy did,
0: yes. Wow. So this case drew some very heavy criticism because the police didn't seem to take the disappearances seriously. Mm -hmm. They called the boys runaways which was typical at that time. I think there was definitely a very long period there was a very long period in our history where if a young boy or a young girl disappeared, they ran away, they'll be back. That was the stereotypical answer that the police would provide families when they tried to say that their child was missing for adverse reasons. Mm -hmm. But August 13th, the grand jury um, uh, gets together. They're trying to determine if there is enough evidence to charge Brooks and Henley. They both were indicted, three counts of murder for Henley and one count for Brooks. Hmm. Eventually, it was changed to six counts of murder for Henley and four for Brooks. They did rule Coral's murder was self-defense. Yeah. So they did not count him in that murder count. Brooks and Henley were each tried separately. Um, Henley began his July 1st, 1974. The jury deliberated about an hour and a half before finding Henley guilty. On July sixteenth of all six murders, wow. he got six separate ninety-nine year sentences to be served consecutively. Wow, that was five hundred and ninety-four years total, and he was sent to Huntsville unit to serve out his sentence.
1: Okay.
0: In the meantime, he appealed and got a retrial. Um, June eighteenth, nineteen seventy-nine, was when his trial was his new trial was scheduled. He contended the jury hadn't been properly sequestered, that news media should not have been allowed in the courtroom. And that they should have been allowed to change of venue, and they were not. So okay. this afforded him a new trial. The new trial lasted nine days. The verdict and sentencing were exactly the same. Hmm. So it didn't make any difference.
1: Just cost more money. Exactly.
0: David Brooks went to trial February twenty-seventh, 1975, but ultimately he only got charged for one murder. That was the 15-year-old William Ray Lawrence murder. The trial lasted about a week and the jury deliberated for an hour and a half on that one as well before finding him guilty and sentencing him to life in prison. Wow. Henley is now in Mark W. Michael unit in Anderson County, Texas, serving his sentence. He had a parole opportunity. Uh, He's had parole opportunities. So although he did get that big sentence consecutively, he is eligible for parole. Um, All of these have been denied. His next one is scheduled for October, 2025. Interesting, right?
1: I knew he had had like a, yeah, I knew he was still around and in prison. I did not realize he was, he had parole hearings. That's horrifying.
0: Uh, Brooks was sentenced and served out a good portion of his sentence at Terrell Unit near Rocheren, Texas. Um, He died of COVID complications in a Galveston hospital, May 28th, 2020. He was 65. Really? Yeah. That's brutal.
1: Wow. Um, This case is so crazy, too, though,
0: because they say that there are a lot of extra potential victims that haven't been accounted for. And they don't think that the murders, and I kind of talked about this a little bit in the beginning, they don't think that the first murders associated with him are actually his first murders. There's also some speculation that he did some killing in California. And buried bodies out there as well. Interesting. Um, There's also this association with this national sex ring that authorities have really looked into, 42 boys vanished yeah. from that same area at the same time, and they s- terminated the search efforts August thirteenth, 1973, and didn't continue any of it. So there very well could be
1: additional victims for this. And So once they closed the case on, uh, once they got the indictments, they were like, well, this searching. is this? So yeah, they had some bodies funny. that
0: were not identified. They did continue to work mm-hmm. on identifying those bodies. I know that one of them was identified in 2008, and one of them was identified in 2011. So they did continue to work on finding those. I do believe at this point that there are still several of them that are unidentified. Mm-hmm. And then, as well, Coral was known to do a lot of digging. And they say he, was, he said he was burying candy to avoid insects. But he had all of the same tools and equipment in his candy factory days so people believe that he was actually killing boys before then and then another connection that came up later with this case is this picture of a small boy and it's a polaroid picture that was found in henley's possessions authorities believe that this is another victim that of a killing that occurred between 1972 and 1973 and i I believe you've probably seen this picture it was this little boy kind of facing down and kind of crouched in this little area in the floor. And they were trying to figure out who it came from. But they found this picture of this little boy in Henley's possessions, which they believe is something that was taken. I guess Henley says he got this Polaroid camera between 72 and 73, so this is when this picture had to have been taken. But there is some belief that this is yet another victim. Um, but I think that given the time frame that's passed, and sort of the the crazy drug-induced, alcohol-induced extent of this killing, that
1: mm-hmm.
0: I don't think these guys necessarily knew clearly how many, who they were, that kind of thing.
1: So it very it very
0: well could be that there are additional victims that are not identified yeah. just because they were high, or they, it was dark, or they just didn't know, and they were killing so yeah. many people so rapidly.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely believable. But also the, the thing about like the Polaroid, like why, why is it just one Polaroid photo? Like that wasn't part of their thing.
0: They had pictures of victims. There were a lot of them. They just oh, haven't. Oh. They've used them to identify the victims. They haven't oh, released okay. a lot of them. They're in the police files for this. But it's an interesting case. And I think in particular because there is some belief that there really was a sex trafficking ring. Although, it's hard to believe that Coral could be associated with that, given the fact that they found all these bodies. So, if he was truly involved in a sex trade right. businesses, they wouldn't have found these bodies buried by him.
1: You yeah. Know? Yeah. So, I just watched, and I texted you about this. So, I just watched, there's a, a docuseries on Peacock. Um, It's called Devil in Disguise, and it's about John Wayne Gacy. And the whole thing is about whether – I mean, not the whole thing, but it's telling his story. But then toward the tail end of the episodes, it's about whether or not he worked alone. And I know that's a big theory that a lot of people think he didn't work alone. But they also tie this sex trafficking – this same sex trafficking ring.
0: Yeah.
1: A guy who um, was running this sex trafficking ring also apparently had convictions in the Houston area. And he also employed – a guy for his sex trafficking ring purposes or whatever who worked for Gacy. So, like, there's yeah. definitely a link there. Um, but I don't know if they've, like, made anything kind of official. I don't think, I think it's the that much of Norman. a stretch. No, to think it's definitely that believable. That could
0: happen. Um, uh, they, I just don't think the police have really put a lot of effort into making that link. They're like, we've mm-hmm. caught him, he's dead, end of story, done. Right. Perpetrators right. in jail, why should we continue to stir this up? Yeah.
1: And that's the same thing they argue with Gacy is we don't it would it would look bad, after all this time to continue to find victims that yeah. we didn't complete the investigation. and we're just going to traumatize
0: the families even further blah 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 that
1: yeah happens. by not letting them know where their loved ones are I mean that's yeah. just so horrific
0: awful 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 case yeah. Like, like this guy was like extreme sicko on so yeah. many levels like the, to torture somebody like that in those ways is just unforgivable for children. and there's not children. like
1: with so many of these guys you hear like their background story you know like with Gacy we know his father didn't love him his father thought yeah. he was gay and he never always had to prove himself to his father the and the other you know with Bundy we know like he had the and, you know he had the traumatic childhood he didn't know his father like we have we have all of that background we don't have that with him no. with Dean Corll like we just don't know that much about kind of with the things that trigger like we know in a, in a lot of other famous cases who
0: knows really who does yeah. I mean i think it's it's hard to be surprised about connections to any kind of incidences right. in childhood now true but, um let's go ahead and wrap the episode up since it's yeah social media
1: yeah so we are on instagram at the bfd podcast so we will post um, i'm not sure what pictures we're going to post with this one but they will not be post graphic, what looked or, well, like and what yeah. the, to
0: Henley and Brooks looked like. Yeah. Um, and that's I think all I can really yeah. do. Um, in this case. But we don't have t- Twitter anymore. We just it's too much work to try to maintain a lot of social media accounts. We have normal jobs and I think Instagram just lends itself so much better to what we're doing on yeah. this platform. So we just You guys were gonna,
1: interacting with the Instagram more, too. So
0: We're going to maintain just Instagram. Yeah. So we apologize for any Twitter followers that are disappointed, although I just... I think it's mostly just my friends read. that followed out of
1: being nice. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but in any case, um, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions on this case, you can give us an email. Slip yeah, into our for DMs, sure. shoot us an email, uh, tell us about it. You know, we're happy to make corrections and give you a shout out. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. Please, please, please rate, review, and subscribe. That's really, really, really important. And then join us next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.